Hi there, and welcome to Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. Romans chapter 7 is where we find ourselves today, verses 1 through 6, as we take a look at a release from the law. And again, welcome. This is Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. A reference to the law here in chapter 7 will have us looking at some of the Old Testament as well as the New as we see the release from the law and union with Christ and what that means and why it is so important for us to understand it all. Also, at the close of our program, the Equip Conference 2017 is coming up with key speakers Justin Peters and Costi Hinn. That's November 10th, 11th, and 12th here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. More information at the close of our program. Do stick around. But for now, here's Pastor Steve Converse with today's broadcast. If you turn over to Romans chapter 7, I think that Romans uh, 7 and uh, maybe 9, a couple other chapters in this book are rather difficult. And so I've been saying this for weeks. I feel like I'm teaching really above my pay grade here because it's, uh, it's, it's way beyond me, some of the things that we'll go through and study together. But through the power of God's Spirit, He'll give us understanding, I'm sure, as we uh, take apart this text. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning, but I wanted to uh, just give a little introduction, and then I'm actually going to read the whole chapter uh, because we want to make sure that we keep things in its context. So when you think of the word law... Just that word law or the law. Uh, I would say most people have negative thoughts. (laughs) Uh, It conjures up negative thoughts. Um, We don't have to look too far in our society to see all the civil unrest, uh, the rebellion in behavior against, quote, the law. And it's not just recently. It's been going on as long as there's been mankind on the face of the earth. But this last week, I looked up the word law in the dictionary, and here's what I found. One definition was this, the principles and regulations established in a community by some authority and applicable to its people, whether in the form of legislation or of custom and policies recognized and enforced by judicial decision. Wow, that sounds like a mouthful. Another definition said this, any written or positive rule, I thought it was interesting they said positive rule, or collection of rules prescribed under the authority of the state or nation as by the people in its constitution. Thirdly, another definition of law was this, the controlling influence of such rules, the condition of society brought about by their observance, maintaining law and order. And then one just said a system or collection of rules. But I think none of us by default look forward to rules, look forward to regulations. And some of them are just rather silly. But nobody likes rules. You know, whether you're walking across a yard or a park and you see, stay off the grass. Your first inclination is, who are they to tell me to stay off the grass? You know, I want to walk right on that grass. Or if you go down the freeway, you know, and the the speed limit says 55 miles an hour. It's like, eh, 55, you know, 55, 65, 75. What's the difference? You know, if I go 55, I'll, I'll be impeding traffic. So, you know. There's all kinds of rules. Most recently, we found out a lot about the rules in the NFL. 
uh, due to the uh, overinflating or underinflating of the NFL ball. And I thought, you know, this is kind of interesting. I want to go online and see what, what these rules are. Do they really have rules? That, and here's what I found. One of the rules says this. The home club, this is the NFL, dealing with balls, shall have 36 balls for outdoor games and 24 for indoor games. That's kind of weird. I don't know why this didn't make that the same. But anyway, available for testing with a pressure gauge by the referee two hours prior to the starting game, starting time of the game to meet the league requirements. Twelve new balls sealed in a special box and shipped by the manufacturer will be opened in the official's locker room two hours prior to the starting of the game. These balls are to be specifically marked with the letter K. And used exclusively for the kicker. The ball dimensions. It goes on. It says this. The ball must be a, quote, Wilson. How would you like to have that contract? Man. A Wilson hand-selected ball bearing the signature of the commissioner of the league, Roger Goodell. The ball shall be made up of an inflated 12.5 to 13.5 pounds urethane bladder enclosed in a pebble-grained leather case natural tan in color, without corrugations of any kind. It shall have the form of a prolate spheroid, (laughs) and the size and weight shall be long axis 11 to 11 and a quarter, long circumference 28 to 28 and a half inches, short circumference 21 to 21 and a quarter inches, weight 15 or 14 to 15 ounces. The referee shall be the sole judge as to whether all the balls offered for play comply with these specifications. A pump is to be furnished by the home club. And the ball shall remain under the supervision of the referee until they are delivered to the ball attendant just prior to the start of the game. Now, that's way much more than we ever need to know about footballs. But why do they have all these rules? Why do they have all these regulations? Some of you say so they can be broken, right? Well, that's part of it because people want to break it. They don't want to follow the rules. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 1 says... This, in verse 9, it says, Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for who? The lawless. Who needs laws? Those who are lawbreakers. That word law, you might find this interesting, is found 523 times in the Bible. Incredible what you can do with computer software. 223 times it's found in the New Testament. Paul used this word law 148 times, including 78 times in the book we're studying, the book of Romans. And since the word occurs, you'll find it 19 times. There's references to it 23 times in the the chapter that we're currently in, chapter 7. I kind of, by default, figure that's Paul's theme for this chapter, dealing with the law. And... There's been a lot of people that have argued over the fact, well, does he mean the Mosaic law or does he just mean law in general? I kind of come down on the side, he just means law in general. He's just talking about law. Now, there's other commentators that say, well, then maybe, you know, it's, it's referring specifically to the law, but that's not how it is in the original. So that's kind of irrelevant. But it's important to understand that his subject matter throughout Romans chapter 7 is clearly the law. And as we come to this portion in Romans, it's, it's important for us to understand where we have been up to this point. Remember back in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, look back there with me. Paul said this, and this was very controversial. He said, for sin 
will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under what? Grace. At this point in time, his Jewish listeners were about ready to pull their hair out. They said, what? What is he saying? They lived and died by the law. Everything in their religion, everything in their life was formulated around the law. So when Paul comes out and says, hey, you're, you're under grace, you're not under the law. They, you know, they, eyes rolled back in their head. They didn't know what to do. They were just like, wow, what's, what's he saying? And so Paul has to explain what he's saying here in verse 14. And so in verses 15 to 23 of chapter 6, we've already gone over this. He talks about the first part of that statement, the idea that sin shall not be a master over you. And we went through that. And you can get the messages online or back there in the CD table. But it tells us that he, he used the picture, the illustration of slavery to show that we will not sin under grace because we have become enslaved to God and righteousness. In other words, sin does not have its thumb on us anymore. Not that we're perfect, but it doesn't have the power. It's not our master as Christians. The Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ is our master. That the chain that once held us captive to sin has been broken. And so he goes through this whole illustration there in Romans 6. And now when we get to Romans 7, he says, you know, I can't just continue on. I have to explain what I said in the second part of of verse 14, all the way back in Romans 6. And so Romans 7 basically is a expansion of that second part of that verse where he said, for you are not under law, but under grace. Have you ever been in a conversation where you're talking with someone and they say something kind of just, wow, kind of just, you know, you can't get your mind around it. And you start, like, interrupting them. It's like, what, what did you just... They just, hold on a second. I'm going to explain it. Hold on. You see this a lot on talk shows, you know, where they... News, news shows where they give them, like, two seconds to answer some big, long question. And they start answering it, and the guy cuts them off. It's like, boy, that would be so irritating. You know, I just reach over and say, look, be quiet and let me talk. You know, let me explain what I'm trying to say. Well, that's kind of what Paul is doing here. And these guys are probably going, man, I, I still can't get over the fact that you said we're, we're not under the law but under grace. And if Paul were to stop right there, they probably wouldn't hear anything else in, the, in this letter. And so he has to do due diligence and explain to them what he is saying when he says you're not under law, but you're under grace. And so in chapter 7, he begins to tell us what it means to be free or what it means to be released from the law as believers. And how this kind of relates to our own being released from the power of sin in our lives. Remember, the the theme in chapter 6, if you go through chapter 6 and you start counting words, you'll see the word sin appear some 17 times. And that's really the theme of chapter 6. How sin no longer has a dominion over us. And so in his mind, there's a direct correlation between sin and the law. A matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this in chapter 15, verse 56. He says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. So he makes a direct connection between sin and the law. Now, there's a lot of different commentators that make this connection parallel. Uh, Morris, Leon Morris says this. He says in in verse 2 of chapter 6, it tells us that believers have died to sin. Well, in chapter 7, verse 4, it says that we have died to the law. There's a connection there. In chapter 6, verses 18 and 22, it tells us that we have been freed from sin. 
Well, in verse 6 of our text today, Romans 7, it tells us that we have been released or freed from the law. In verse 4 of chapter 6, it tells us that we walk in the newness of life and that we serve, in verse 6 of chapter 7, in the newness of the Spirit. Our victory over sin is tied mainly with our union with Christ, that we were tied to him, we're, we're united with Christ in his death, in his resurrection. We went over that in chapter 6, verses 8 to 11. Well, here in verse 4, we see that our release from the law and its sin-arousing power is because that we have been joined to the crucified and risen Savior. Paul here gives us really a clear understanding of what it means, how a Christian should relate to the law. Like I said, we have a lot of negative things about the law. Even amongst Christians, you hear certain Christians who maybe call another brother or sister to task over maybe a sin in their life. And they, hey, we're not under the law, we're under grace, brother. Back up, you know, ease up a little bit. You hear that all the time. And so there's almost the idea today amongst modern day Christians that somehow it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how we live because we're under, quote, grace. Well, that's not Paul's point. It's never the point of Scripture. The law of God is a wonderful thing. It's a blessed thing. It's something that we should cherish. And we need to establish that before we even get into our text because if we just jump right into the text, we may still have some negativity floating around in our mind about God's law or about law in general. Laws are good things. I'm glad we have laws. Now, yes, some of them lead to bureaucratic nonsense, but you know what? For the most part, they keep our society somewhat civil. Can you imagine if there were no laws at all? Whether you like the laws or not, it'd be a nightmare. So God's law is definitely a glorious thing, and we need to understand that even though Paul says we're released from it. doesn't mean it goes away. Turn over in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I just want to highlight a couple verses that talk about God's law because it's important to understand that it's not just me saying this. This is what God's word says about his law. Uh, Look at chapter 6, Deuteronomy, all the way in the beginning there of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. He says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach. That you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long hear therefore O Israel and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord the God of your fathers has promised to you in a land flowing with milk and honey hear O Israel The Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontals between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What's he talking about? He's talking about God's statutes. He's talking about the very word of God that that we have. The law of God. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 13. 
one of the wisest men that ever lived, says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. What is it? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, to fear God and to keep his commandments. And we don't have to look too far. Ken read from the book of Psalms, but if you turn to Psalm 119, don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Maybe I should, but... (laughs) There's a couple of verses here that jump out. Verse 1, blessed are those, Psalm 119, verse 1, whose way is blameless, who walk, what's it say? In the law of the Lord. Look down at verse 4. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Precepts, law. Verse 5, oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes or law. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 12, blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. The psalmist is crying out to God to reveal his law to him. Verse 34, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Or verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. If you jump down to verse 160 there. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Verse 165, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Or finally there in verse 172, my tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments or laws are right. See, God's word exalts the law of God. Nothing has changed, beloved. Nothing has changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament concerning the law of God. It's still relevant for us today. It's something that we need to uh, honor, we need to look up to. Now, yeah, we're released from it because why did God give the law? God gave the law to show us what? Our sin, our sinfulness. He didn't give us the law so we could get saved. (laughs) Isaiah the prophet Isaiah in chapter 42, verse 21. I love this verse, 42, 21. He says, The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. The law of God is a glorious law. And even the apostle Paul, the writer of the book that we're studying right now, when he was in the throes of Judaism himself and really at a pinnacle in his religious life, bought into all the Jewish religion, all the legalism involved. In his letter to the Philippian church, he testified to the trust that he once had in his observance of the law. says in Philippians chapter 3, he says, Though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. It almost sounds braggadocious, doesn't it? But he's not bragging, he's making a point. He's pointing out what a radical transformation Christ had made in his life. He says, first of all, I was circumcised on the eighth day, as a good Jewish boy would be, of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, he says, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, what's he say? A Pharisee. They were like at the epitome of those who kept the light. They were just, they were so into the law. I mean, it, it, it infuriated them whenever Jesus or anyone spoke out against God's law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law. See that? What's he say? He was blameless. See, what Paul is saying is if anybody understands what it means to to be under the burden of the law and to have to keep it, 
and thinking somehow that's helping you religiously. It was me. And I did that for years, he says. And even our own Lord in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 19, Matthew 5, 17 to 19, Jesus wanted to be very clear about the law because maybe some of his followers thought, hey, well, now that Jesus has come and now that we're following him the way, you know, we don't need to deal with all this stuff over here. This is all mosaic stuff. We'll just kind of bury that. That's dead. We're moving on. And I think Jesus came to a point in his ministry where he had to point this out to them. And look at what he says in verse 17 of Matthew 5. He says, do not think, this is Jesus speaking, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth will pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. See, we need to hear things like this. You know, the church of Christ today, the universal church of Christ needs to hear things like this. It's not just, oh, just let go and lay back in the armchairs of grace and, you know, let God do his work in you somehow. No, God has given us certain instructions in his word that we're called to be obedient to. We don't just live, you know, fancy free, footloose, the whole thing, and just kind of do whatever we want as Christians because we know all of our sins are forgiven and we're not under the law. So what does it matter? That's really what Paul questioned back in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. In other words, you don't have any right to do that. You don't do that. How can he who died to sin still live in it? 1 Timothy 1.8 tells us, Paul writes, but we know that the law is good. So whether you look in the Old Testament, whether you look in the New Testament, the law is something that needs to be cherished. The law is something that needs to be exalted. Are we released from it? Yes, and that's what we're going to begin to look at. If it wasn't for the law, we'd have no definition for sin. There'd be no way to discern what sin is. 1 John 3, 4 says that sin is what? Lawlessness. So if you don't have any law, you're not going to understand what sin is. That's why when the law was given, it wasn't given as a bunch of stuff that we have to check off every day and do and keep because that's impossible. It was given to show our utter inability to keep it. See, the law is something that's an essential reality. And that's why in Romans chapter 3, verse 31, Paul asked this question, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? In other words, because we have this newfound faith in Christ, does that mean the law just kind of goes away? And he says, no, no way. We uphold the law. And that's what's important. That's what we have to understand, what God is sharing with us. In other words, if you can come to God by faith and you don't have to do the law, you don't have to keep the law in your own human strength, You can't do it anyway. If God accepts you by faith, do we make the law void? Do we make the law useless? Is that something that just happened in the Old Testament? You know, we're New Testament Christians. We don't don't deal with that Old Testament stuff. Not at all. The answer is, is no, absolutely not. No way. God forbid. And he says, rather, we establish the law. And so Paul wants to establish the place of the law in the life of a believer. Because the law is good, the law is holy, the law is righteous, the law is honorable. The law reflects the literal mind and heart of God. We could never throw it out. And as wonderful as the law is, God also wants us to understand that nobody under 
any circumstances at any time will ever be justified before God by keeping his law. That's an impossibility. So if you want to gain victory in your life over sin, you have to come to Romans 7 and you have to wrestle with this text. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal his grace to your hearts through the teaching of his word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. Another note as we let you go today, don't forget to sign up for our Equip Conference 2017, which will take place November 10th. 11th and 12th. Now, the sole focus of the Equip Conference is to expose you to biblical teaching and preaching for the purpose of growing you, your leadership, your church members to do effective ministry. Along those lines, our keynote speakers this year will be Justin Peters and Costi Hinn. It's all based out of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. We would love to have you join us. Go to gracebibleonline.org forward slash equip for all of the details and to register. Again, gracebibleonline.org forward slash equip. That's the Equip Conference 2017, November 10th, 11th, and 12th. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.